Hello and welcome back to episode 37 of Double Reel, the podcast magazine for the discerning film nerd. My name's James Adamson and I'm here to regale you with nerdy chat about films and the world of cinema generally. I'm joined as always by my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for that introduction. It's good to be back with a lovely new microphone, so hopefully I sound much better than last episode. Again, my apologies, but hopefully it's nice and clear this month. You sound very good to me, mate. Last week, we brought you the first part, Double Reel Monthly, with news, reviews of new releases, and chat about how we're fitting film-watching into our busy, exciting lives. If you haven't heard it yet, please do go back and download it, where you'll find reviews of new films, including Three Musketeers D'Artagnan, my look at David Cronenberg's Spider, and James's look at a Nick Cage film picked at random. Just to mention again, if you're enjoying the pod, we'd be very grateful if you'd take a couple of minutes to leave a five-star review about us wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for our regular features, starting with Classics and Recommended, where we dip into our list of great films we haven't got round to seeing yet. For this episode, it's Ryan Gosling's breakout crime drama, Drive. Our hidden gem looks at lesser-known or underappreciated films that deserve a wider audience, which this month features the Brian De Palma Vietnam film, Casualties of War. Then it's The One That Got Away, where we look at projects that filmmakers tried and failed to bring to the big screen. This time we look at John Carpenter's potential involvement in the classic western Tombstone. We close our features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This month, we discuss the new version of Midway. Next week, it's The Big Conversation, where we discuss a topic from the film world in more detail. We'll tell you more about that a bit later. First, we've got some messages from listeners about this month's features. On our classic drive, Wahab says, My favourite film of 2011. Magnus says, Masterpiece should have won Best Picture Oscar instead of The Artist. Rye says, Love it. Uh, This and Baby Driver are great modern takes on a classic type of film. On our hidden gem, Casualties of War, Kev says this is my favourite Sean Penn film. Harry agrees. The ending aside, I love it. I think it's a very powerful film about a shameful incident. Mark says, I always thought Fox was miscast, but it probably wouldn't have been made without him. It's a powerful, depressing film, all the more so because it really happened. On our remake, Midway, Dylan says, quite enjoyed this one. Those pilots on both sides must have had balls of steel to take on fleets protected by powerful anti-aircraft weapons. Nick agrees. MCC does not. It was shite. Crams far too much into two hours, resulting in loads of scenes a few seconds long about quite major events, trying to pack in everything from Pearl Harbor to the Battle of Midway. John says, the fellow who did Independence Day tries to make a war film. Ham-fisted script, cringeworthy dialogue, and the real historical offence get drowned in CGI and jingoism. So, mixed feelings from, uh, from listeners on that. On the one that got away, John Carpenter's Tombstone, Sam says, I love John Carpenter and he made some great films, but only within a short window of time. This would have been outside that window, so I don't think it would have worked. I, I, I disagree with that, but uh, never mind. Rona says, I like Tombstone the way it is, so no. Uh, thanks for all your messages, even the ones we couldn't read out. Uh, now on with the pod. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films. I mean, we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films, from 90s crime epic Casino to outlaw country biopic Walk the Line. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet, and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list, and you can make recommendations there or on all the usual places on our socials. This month we look at a modern day crime drama that harks back to the films of the 70s and the style of the 80s. Our classics and recommended feature for episode 37 is Drive. 
So, James, had you had you seen this before? I think I watched this when I first got Netflix. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was on Netflix yeah. back in like 2012 when I got it. Yeah. And then it became like this huge thing, so I think it got bought up and taken off Netflix. Yeah. I might be making that completely I, up, but I saw it like when I was about 16, so a bit young to be watching it legally, but yeah, still it, pretty good. It, it, de- it developed a big cult following, so that that, that yeah. tracks that it would go on and then blow up, and then the, then the, the owners would go, hang on, we're not making enough money here. Um, yeah. and it's now on Netflix, but obviously it's over a decade since it came out. That's the way it kind of, these things cycle around. Um, I, I hadn't seen it all the way through. I'd seen clips, and I'd seen the trailer, and I'd heard the soundtrack, and I'd gone, oh, that reminds... And I think it was a case of, because you watch this, because you watch that, you should watch Drive, because you know the algorithm knows what I've watched. Um, and I, I, I saw that and went, okay, this is definitely influenced by Walter Hill's The Driver, which we talked about on our, our um, Spotlight and Walter Hill uh, episode. Uh, there's definitely some Michael Mann in there, um, like Thief and, and a bit of Heat in terms of sort of the uh, sort of the vibe and the atmosphere. Um, gen- generally speaking, what's your relationship to these kinds of films? It's almost like it's a bit of a 70s throwback, this kind of driver-based um, you know, sort of lone hero doesn't talk very much. Have you seen many other films like this, like some of the old Steve McQueen films and stuff like that, or is this kind not, of its own thing for you? Not really. What I will say about this film is that it was unlike anything I'd ever been introduced to before. Yeah, and that's not like that's not to say that it's its own film and it's not got influences from elsewhere. But at the time, I was sixteen and I'd only ever watched like some Christopher Nolan and you know Star Wars, Marvel. Pixar. That was kind of where I was kind of getting into watching films that weren't just those kind of franchise blockbusters. Yeah. So it did seem very unique to me at the time. But when you start looking at other films, I for some reason I get a real French connection vibe from it, and I don't know why. Just maybe it's to do with all the cars and the kind of grittiness. Yeah, of it. yeah. No, it's there's the that. Of... There's that kind of um, point of view shot of the car sort of zooming along the street, isn't it? Which is. Yeah, I think the thing that's interesting about this, this is Nicholas Winning Refn. He's a Danish uh, filmmaker who's moved over to America. He, he's remained slightly on the independent side of things, although his films are kind of... You know, like you have indie directors who are on like tiny budgets, and then you have indie directors who are kind of like the... They're like the Christopher Nolan of indie directors. They've got the most budget and the biggest actors of anyone else, anyone making independent film. Nicholas Winning Refn is, is kind of like that, and... With the films he's done, you look at the, th- the like the, the kind of the music that he uses and the dis- you know, the style and descriptions of his films. What people generally say about him with it's this only God forgives and um, there's a third one, uh, the Neon Demon, where that I think what he's done is there's a younger audience that wasn't around for those '80s crime films and '70s crime films, so that you know that that music, the look the kind of um, neon-saturated cinematography, the themes and those type of heroes. And he's, he's taken all of those elements and introduced them to, to an audience who wasn't around first time round. So it... And, and I think I think there's something to be said for that because that's what those people did. I mean, Walter Hill, when he did The Driver in 1978, A, it wasn't appreciated at the time. It got quite a critical drubbing in America at the time, although the French loved it. And then 10 years later, everyone acts like Walter Hill, The Driver, was like, well, of course Walter Hill's The Driver. That's how we make films now. It was one of those ones. So it's kind of, these films are in the DNA of like Hollywood crime films. So I think it's... Uh, uh, it's perfectly valid for someone to go back and use those influences and, and introduce them to another audience. Um, the, um, the the basis for this film is that Ryan Gosling is a sort of a laconic, you know, you know, doesn't you know, man a few words, 
and he's he works as a mechanic in the day for Brian Cranston. He's also a stunt driver when when work is available, doing all the dangerous. He's basically a freelancer doing all the dangerous car crash stunts for for Hollywood films, and he's he's also organised for him by Brian Cranston, his boss. Uh, sort of a getaway driver for hire. So people who, who are going to do a heist to rob a, I don't know, a, a pawn shop or a a, a, a a bank, I guess, or, you know, anything. Something where they, naughty. Something naughty. They hire him and he basically says, I'll be here for five minutes. Uh, you know, and anything that happens during that time, I'll take care of you. Anything happens outside of that, you're on your own. The idea is, is that, the, you know, the, the, they carry out their robbery, they jump in the back and he gets them away. And so he's obviously a very skilled driver. None of what he's doing seems to be paying all that well because he's living in a fairly kind of run-down apartment in like an ordinary tower block. And he and Brian Cranston are trying to get out from this kind of... They're kind of low-level, aren't they? They're, in all the industries they're working in, they're very low-level trying to scratch a living. Brian Cranston's trying to get a way out by, you know, seeing if he can get him a, a gig as a, um, as a stock car driver. But the only person he knows who can lend him the money is a, a, a crime boss who was involved in kind of, you know, injuring him a long time ago over a dispute and is going to take most of the money. So it's almost like Ryan Gosling is working for a guy who's kind of using him but fond of him and stuck working for these kind of crime bosses who are, you know, not to be trusted and and, and are kind of going to take all the fruits of their labours. And he has a a, a romance or, or starts to develop feelings for his neighbour which is complicated by the fact that her husband's about to get out of prison. So all of these things are kind of, you know, percolating up. And the, the heists or the, the driving jobs that he does for, for bank robbers starts to, you know, escalate and turn into a problem that he's got to resolve. So I'm I, I, I trying to encapsulate the plot without giving any of it away, if you see what I mean. Um, so... What was your feeling about this, about the vibe and the style and, and what it was? What were your thoughts watching this film, mate? It's very gritty. Um, I watched it again, and I don't think it's that good. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think it was the best film of 2011. I think it's a great film and definitely better than The Artist. The Artist wasn't. The Artist yeah. just got grossly overrated that year. And I think that's what led people to kind of overhype films like... Um, um, drive mm-hmm. but what i will say is that it is an excellent film for if you're it's it's it could almost be like a hidden gem in a way because you don't expect it to be that good you know everyone's mm. raving about it but you're watching you go oh wow that's really really good yeah yeah we, we can't have it as one of our hidden gems because we're not the ones banging the drum for this everyone else is banging the drum for this yeah. do you know what i mean but it is a cult classic it's a it's an indie film which broke out i mean th- this film is right up my street i mean i love michael mann films and, and you know, thief and heat are, are, you know i think are, are superb films again this this film borrows from walter hill's the driver which is an absolutely superb film as well the kind of the 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 night sort of cinematography with the neon signs, the 80s style soundtrack, the the 70s style, you know, mood and themes. This film is, you know, very, very up my street. Um, And it's also got a terrific cast. I mean, Ryan Gosling, this was his kind of breakout role. Brian Cranston. It's always funny with Brian Cranston because when he's in a supporting role, you always kind of go, oh, well, this isn't like Breaking Bad where he gets got, got to play Walter White and go all the way through that character. But it's a supporting role in one film. What do you, what do you want to do, right? And he's very good as the, as the character he plays. Um, as always. You've got Carrie Mulligan as the as the, the would-be girlfriend. 
Albert Brooks and Ron Perlman as the crime bosses and Oscar Isaac as the husband of Kerry Mulligan who gets out of prison and complicates things. So it's a terrific cast as well. Um, my feelings about it were, I thought the first 20 minutes were were, were, were excellent and the last 30 minutes were, were superb. I did feel like it, it had pacing problems in the middle. I don't know about you. Yeah, I would agree. It's it feels like quite a slow film. Th- like this, it yeah, is, it's kind of this. It does a lot of establishment in the first twenty to thirty minutes or so, and then it, in terms of like exciting establishment, and then it kind of goes to a different kind of development of the plot. Yeah, yeah. Like the next. Yeah, so so like, like fifty minutes or so. So like in the first twenty minutes, you see him act as a getaway driver for you know someone who's hired him to kind of get them away from the robbery they commit. You see a little bit of him working in his mechanic job for Brian Cranston. You get like a flavor of their relationship. You get a flavor of their relationship to, to the crime bosses. You also get him doing a, you know, the stunt driving for the, and there's a bit, there's a bit of a uh, Chekhov's gun at the beginning, you know, so, you, know, you know, how these films work stuff you see in the first 20 minutes. Some of that's going to come back in the last, 30 isn't it that's how that's how storytelling works um so you see him do like a a, you know a a car stunt on a film set and you go okay right this is this is interesting he's got all this stuff going on in his life and like you say the so i i'm not i'm not going to criticize the film for having a kind of a, a, a a slower pace overall a slow paced film isn't necessarily a bad thing but it is harder to do the the ultimate kind of slow paced crime film is michael mann's heat which takes nearly three hours and, you know, not not everyone loves it, but I, but a lot of people, you know, see it as a classic. And what Michael Mann was very good at was that even though the film doesn't have like a bang, 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 fast edit pace, he manages to sustain that pace. And the storytelling, the, 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 the story beats that you hit need to be right if you're going to tell it at that pace. And I, I felt there were times when he was... There were a few too many long lingering shots where you go, come on, you, you've done, you've, you're done now. You need to be on to the next scene. You know, mm-hmm. the the other thing I thought, and again, these are criticisms of a film I, I on the whole enjoyed, and I, especially the, the the way the film, the the beginning and end are very good. Um, I also felt like it felt like it was missing one more getaway job in the middle of the film, like uh, you know. Th- because the one thing, the one thing that that's hard with a character like Ryan Gosling is that guy doesn't say very much and doesn't give much away about what his thinking is. Is that if you're not careful, he feel he just feels like a character is drifting from thing to thing rather than driving the story himself. And maybe just something about one more getaway job that's a bit hairy or getting a bit wrong. He's a bit sick of working with these fucking idiots, you know. Because he's just working for whoever, and if they're fuckwits and, and get themselves into all sorts of trouble, that adds risk to his life. That's why he's trying to get out of it, you know. So maybe a bit more of that, maybe a bit more about how some of the stuff that's really fascinating about Heat is that you actually see the logistics of how they get information about a job, how they set it up, the the, the different relationships of the different like crime network that they have to work in, and and the and the complications that can bring. And they do a bit of that, but then they do spend a lot of time of, hey, he's going to go for a drive for Kerry Mulligan. Isn't that nice? And you just think a little bit more, I think they need a little a little bit more suspense in the middle, a bit more tension on whether he can truly trust Brian Cranston. Because they say a little bit, don't they, at the beginning, Brian Cranston kind of says, oh, I've been exploiting him. And he's kind of half joking about it. You get the feeling that Brian Cranston's quite fond of Ryan Gosling, but he is using him. And oh. just, just a little bit more on the dynamics of that relationship. Because then when... I don't want to give too much away, but then there was a heist towards the end 
where you know Ryan Gosling might feel like maybe he's you know it, maybe he's breaking the rules, maybe he's betraying Brian Cranston. He's not sure whether he's doing the right thing. But you don't, you know, Steve McQueen used to do all this and and you know say a lot without saying without you know opening his mouth. But you need a little bit more meat on the bones of the plot to just kind of take you through that middle bit. It's. I wouldn't say any of the scenes were bad. I mean, I thought the way he built the relationship with with Carrie Mulligan and the way Oscar Isaac's character plays out, it was was all fine. It was all interesting. I just felt they just needed to just up the pace a little bit. And it's 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 a minor criticism of a film I otherwise otherwise very much enjoyed. Um, the only other thing I don't know what you thought about this. Ryan Gosling's character is capable of quite a lot of violence, isn't he? But it, it, the, the, you, is it the bit in the lift that's yeah, the bit that sticks out for me? Yeah, but prior to that, you don't see very much of that. You, the only bit you see is that little bit where that guy approaches him in the bar and he tells him to fuck off. And I just thought, I think it would have just added more suspense about his relationship with Kerry Mulligan, knowing that she's got a kid and all that stuff in his life and knowing what's coming to just kind of see what... Because he's kind of wrestling with two sides to himself. I don't think he wants to necessarily be a criminal although I don't think he's got strong kind of moral feelings about it either way. And I think he's he's got qualms about his violent kind of li- lifestyle and how it's going to Im- impact people who are, who are innocent. And yet you don't see much of him acting that way until the end. And I just feel sometimes you need to, you need to see a little bit of what that character is capable of before, before the end. But I'm, I'm, I'm nitpicking a film I otherwise did really quite like. Yeah, no, I would agree. If you're having to nitpick it, it probably shows you that it's actually quite a good film. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm probably only nitpicking it because it is held up as a classic and because there are parts of this film which are absolutely superb. And if every part of that film was as... If the middle was as good as the beginning of the end, I would actually be on the same kind of podium as the guy demanding the Best Picture Oscar. Because there are... part In parts, this film is absolutely brilliant, especially the look and style and tone... I just think um, that, that the one or two times where the pacing let it down, um, but otherwise a good film. And you know, oh, here's me stroking my chin and kind of agreeing that a film everyone else has already discovered is a good film. But I wish I'd seen it sooner. I, 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 it's just one of those ones where I just never got around to watching it. You know. Any more thoughts on this, mate? Um, no, I, I think it's become a little bit overrated in a sense that everyone just waxes lyrical about it. And I'm always very wary of that because it can spoil the film for someone else. Um, didn't do that for me because the first time I saw it, it was, you know, I hadn't, I had no idea who was in it. And you you it just, about. you just got to go in and see it. But I feel like it's, it's good watching it again. I thought it's not that good. It's, mm-hmm. it's a great film, hundred percent great film. Um, I would rather watch Baby Driver if I was wanting to watch a Getaway Driver film mm-hmm. because I th- think there's just a little bit more to it. A bit I think more the lively. Film, like you say, the char- the main character doesn't really say a lot and you've got to do other things to establish them, like establish their character and the film doesn't really yeah. do that. So, so everyone's seen Heat pretty much. It's like one of the top 10 most watched films on, on Netflix. Um, so it's not even only the people who watched it like me when it came out. Everyone's seen Heat. But the other two big, really bigger touchstones for this film are Thief, which is another Michael Mann film starring James Caan, which is very good at the whole criminal and can he have a relationship with an ordinary person type stuff. Very, very good. Another film to watch. 
I'm not, I'm not saying watch these films instead, you know, trying to be like the, the, the old guy who says everything is better than the old days. But if you like that aspect of, 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 of Drive, definitely watch Thief because I think you'll enjoy that as well. And in terms of the driver, the driver's got two things. It's got the same basic plot engine. This guy is a getaway driver for hire. And it's also got that kind of enigmatic central character. And Walter Hill's The Driver is an absolute fucking classic. And it's trying to do something slightly different to Drive. It is very much, it's more stripped down. But the car chases and the battles and the, the, the cat and mouse game between him and, and the cops in that is fucking legendary. So if you like Drive, definitely go back to some of the, the inspirations for Drive because why wouldn't you want more of, of what you like? I'd definitely recommend Thief and, and The Driver. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month's feature was one of the last of the cycle of Vietnam War films that had such cultural significance in the 1980s but which has been somewhat forgotten in the years since. The hidden gem for episode 37 is Brian De Palma's Casualties of War. So James, seen this before? Nope. What, what's your, I mean, obviously you've studied your history and everything else, you know, you know, you obviously, you know, the Vietnam War uh, well and everything, but what's your relationship to Hollywood's uh, film and television depictions of the Vietnam War? I mean, it's, I don't like the fact that it does always just focus on Americans. Yeah. Because this... the Vietnamese were fucking badass in terms of let's shaft the biggest nation on earth. Um and all it is, it seems to just focus on the American experience, but that's natural, isn't it? Because it is Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that's the way America works. It's you know, the, it's it's the cultural equivalent of the fact that they don't need to leave the country to go on a skiing holiday or a beach holiday or a you know or a, you know a three thousand mile road trip. You know, um, so you can go a long way inside America and never see anywhere in the rest of the world. Um, you know, physically and culturally. My dad, your granddad, said something very interesting about this back in the day. He said Hollywood films always talk about what Vietnam did to. America, not what America did to Vietnam. This, though, this film does talk a little bit about what America did to Vietnam, uh, I would say. Um, but in terms of the... Uh, so let's do a bit of background. This is based on a true life incident. It was known as the incident on Hill 192. They've changed the names and some details of the plot um, because I think they realised that if you want to do a film with a beginning, a middle, and end, it's better to just take inspiration from a true life incident rather than try and say this is the true life incident. Um, but it's, it is actually very close to the actual events. We can look a little bit later at what changed. Uh, directed by Brian De Palma, who we've talked about on this podcast before, especially Blowout, which is like the, the OG hidden gem. Uh, obviously, you know Brian De Palma from Scarface, The Untouchables. How many yep. De Palma films have you seen? You ever seen, seen Blowout for the pod? Oh, that's a good question. Brian De Palma. He, he did some films which would be sort of miles out of your frame of reference just because it's sort of a, a completely bygone age, but he did these kind of latter-day slasher movies uh, like Body Double, um, Dressed to Kill. Um, there's the one that he did with... Uh, oh, no, that is oh. the one he did with Michael Caine, is Dressed I've to Kill. I've seen Scarface, and I've seen The Untouchables, and I've seen the first missions in Mission Impossible. Yeah. And then going a bit further back now, um, the original Carrie. 
Yeah, obviously Carrie. I mean, Carrie is, is an interesting one because it's, uh, as a Stephen King adaptation, it's got its own life kind of outside of Brian De Palma's filmography kind of thing. Um, but obviously it's a very, very Brian De Palma film. This is um, this is almost a rite of passage for big directors back back in the day that every sort of big director would, you know, would be likely to do a, um, a Vietnam film at some point. Uh, this one in particular is... A little bit different in that sense. It comes quite late in the cycle. It's 1989. There'd already been quite a lot of um, Vietnam films at that point. Michael J. Fox is in the lead role, and he's trying to break out of light comedy roles. And everyone knows him at this point from Teen Wolf, Back to the Future, Secret of My Success. Um, Hugely successful at that because he was so bloody good at it. There were three films he did um, at that time that were like heavier, more dramatic roles, which he was trying to... um, just avoid being pigeonholed. Light of day, um, bright lights, big city, and this, casualties of war. None of them did very well at the box office. The American public did not want him to do films like this. Um, Sean Penn, this is Sean Penn breaking out of a rather rough 1980s he had due to the curse of Madonna. Um, Same thing happened to Guy Ritchie. Um, Someone who's having a successful career spends several years having a shit career because he gets too close to Madonna. Um, She's just poisoned for films. (laughs) But in terms of the cycle of Vietnam films in the late 70s to 80s, I'm just going to read some names out. You can tell me whether you've seen them. Starting in 1978, uh, The Boys in Company C. Don't think you've seen that, have you? No, I've not seen that. Go Tell the Spartans. No. Coming Home, John Voight, Jane Fonda. No. That's about a Vietnam veteran who's been injured in the war in his life at home, but it is kind of seen as one of the cycle of Vietnam films. The Deer Hunter? Yes. Yeah. What did you think of The Deer Hunter? Fucking dark, isn't it? Yeah. Um... The thing is, with, with with the cast that you've got, it's hard to be you know un, unwatchable. But it's 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 portrayal of Vietnam War is absolute bullshit. Um, anyway, uh, Apocalypse Now, obviously. Yep. Birdie, I don't know if you've seen that. No. That's got Nick Cage in it again. That's about Vietnam veterans once they're home and like the aftermath of the war. Platoon. Uh, yes. Gardens of Stone. Nope. That's another Francis Ford Coppola film. That's with James Caan as a, as an officer who's. Um, the Gardens of Stone is a, a sort of a, a figure of speech for like the, the war cemetery. So it's about dealing with the war dead afterwards. Uh, this is Couchies of War. And the other one's Born on the 4th of July with Tom Cruise. Yes. So, yeah. So the thing I've that's... I've seen that. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> the, th- the thing that's leaving over all of these films, which is a film I know you've watched, and that's Tropic Thunder. Yeah. How, how much did the things that Tropic Thunder parodied kind of overshadow what these the start the style and tropes of standard Vietnam films because Tropic Thunder really kind of sticks a pin in a lot of that stuff doesn't it like all the all all the all the Vietnam slang and all like all the the the, the tropes get absolutely sort of rinsed in Tropic Thunder don't they yeah so I don't know I, I think just because something was kind of poked fun at I don't think it kind of I don't think it necessarily spoiled those films for me hmm. you get what I'm saying yeah um, but they do they do rip the arse out of Platoon, of course, and just the, the the explosion at the start kind of ripping the arse out of Apocalypse Now. Just mm-hmm. the the entire project is ripping the arse out of Apocalypse Now, really, isn't it? Because yeah, yeah. It's an absolute disaster piece. Yeah. But, yeah. I, th- I think what Tropic Thunder was kind of going at was there's a film called Hamburger Hill, which I didn't mention on this main list, came out in 1987, which was kind of... It's like the poor quality, cheesy, like, it's like, they're, they're, Vietnam films became a bit of a cliche, and I think the good Vietnam films steer clear of the cliche, 
but you're always kind of on the edge because so many films just really kind of, uh, yeah, all, all you need is you need to use some of that Vietnam slang. You need to have a scene where everyone's like feeling really kind of uh, upset and traumatized by the war and like a big speech for the camera. And this kind of, this kind of tropes which Tropic Thunder was taking the piss out. That still doesn't mean a, a, a good Vietnam film isn't good. Um, so by way of a summary, Michael J. Fox is the young new recruit in a, um, in a, in a, a unit in, in Vietnam. Sean Penn is the sergeant in charge and is not got long to go before he goes. He's a lot more kind of experienced and hard bitten. Um, you got supporting people in the film like John C. Riley and John Leguizamo more or less making their debuts. Uh, and in the film, uh, Sean Penn, despite being having a very sort of you know record for bravery and kind of sterling service in the actual combat, he's you know he's got a very very dark side because what he decides to do and and sort of strong arms the rest of the group into doing is to kidnap a young woman from a neighbouring village and take her as what they call portable R&R on the trip, which means they're just going to use her, essentially rape and, and, and torture her um, to just keep them busy on the on the on on their trip because they haven't had any R&R lately and he just feels like it's almost owed him that he's allowed to do this. Michael J. Fox is understandably horrified by all this. He's kind of the... He's based on a real person who did all the things that Michael J. Fox did in the film, but he's kind of the the audience is kind of way into this because he's kind of the person who's new to the war and kind of can't stand what, what he's seeing. Um, and the, the woman is tortured and, and mistreated and uh, murdered and, and raped and, and, and treated despicably. Michael J. Fox refuses to participate, tries to stop it, tries to rescue her uh, and afterwards reports them uh, for what they did. Th- th- these are the, these are the facts, and, and that's not spoiling the plot because this, the plot is how that happens and what's going on. Um, there's also early supporting roles for Ving Rhames and Wendell Pierce from The Wire. Um, I wonder if you notice, mate, the um, the opening and, and closing scenes of the film feature a woman who looks very much like the woman who was kidnapped and reminds Michael J. Fox of of the incident. Did you notice that it was the same actress playing both parts? I didn't know, but I noticed. That I mean, they had they had her wearing massively different like hair and makeup and glasses yeah, yeah, yeah. and stuff. So they they did a lot to kind of make her look look different, but but similar. If you see what I mean. Um, yeah. Were, were you aware of the the original incident? Um. Or just generally no. aware that stuff like that happened in Vietnam? No, I wasn't. I wasn't aware of it when I went into it. But then I do that thing that all people seem to do when they've got a little bit of ADHD and I just went to IMDb check, and check, about the entire film. And then check the Wikipedia uh, page and all that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so the changes include that in real life, Sean Penn's character didn't save Michael Michael J. Fox's life, uh, Michael J. Fox's life in the opening battle, but he did save other soldiers like that. He had a, a record for bravery. They added some combat incidents through that, whereas in real life, the mission was just reconnaissance. I just feel like that, you know, if you know, assemble that and spend all that money on, on, a, on a Vietnam film, you've got to have a little, little bit more action. Otherwise, it would it would only have had like the battle scene at the beginning. Um, did quite poorly at the box office. It lost money despite good reviews. Um, so here we are talking about it, seeing if it deserves to be kind of recast to everyone. What what were you thinking? How, how did you feel about how this film unfolded through watching it, mate? No, don't laugh. But I have difficulties watching Sean Penn because of Team America. Yeah. No, not because Team America were wrong, but because they were right, and Sean Penn's a fucking knob end. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. I, I just can't... You know that way you used to not be able to look at Timothy Oliphant? Yeah. That's just the way I... 
uh, Sean Penn's fucking face. It's just irritates me it irks me the, 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 the thing about movies is that there is such a huge relationship between the people on the screen and the audience that if, if a particular actor sets your teeth on edge you are going to struggle like your your auntie my sister um can't stand jeff bridges huh. and it's like she can't, she can't even explain it she just says look i just don't like him i don't find him an engaging screen presence so if that bothers you that bothers you right what did you think of Michael J. Fox in this role? Because obviously you'll know Michael J. Fox from Back to the Future, and this is very, very different from his typical role. Yeah. Um, impressive. Do you know what I mean? Like, That's the biggest shame of this, is that he was he did everything that was asked of him and did a really good job in this role, but America just wasn't ready for him to do it, you know? Yeah. Um, bit of a shame, because everyone kind of knows him as... Back to the Future or the kind of soft spoken voice of Stuart Little mm-hmm. um, but yeah he, he showed that he's got some acting chops and you know it's unfortunate that he's not been allowed to use them as such yeah it's just p- people do get sort of put in a box I mean he, he was this like light comedy leading man and that's I think it was taken for granted at the time but you know if, if you look if you look now and say imagine someone had a story like Back to the Future I'm not suggesting remaking it but imagine a story that just requires a young guy to just carry a film like that which is that impeccable comic timing and to make all of that stuff work and you think all right pick whatever actor is currently working now who's about, say, 21, and see if any of them could do what Michael J. Fox could do in that film. And there fucking isn't anyone. So, obviously, he's he was hugely valued for his, like, light comedy, but he, he shows in this film that he's capable of, of a lot more than that besides. Um, what about the film generally, the way it portrayed the, the, the incidents, how well made it was, the, how, you know, the recreation of the Vietnam War? What do you think of all of that? Yeah, uh- it's similar to every other Vietnam film, you know, it's it's Vietnam. There's only so much you can do. The only film that I can really think of that doesn't depict Vietnam as Vietnam in quotation marks is, um, of course, Full Metal Jacket, which tries to present a suburban. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the the, the, the urban war. Yeah, a very, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, I mean that's one of the things that makes Full Metal Jacket interesting. Although I think the, the you know the lack of location shooting made it a little struggle, but the, they did have wars in the big cities and built up areas, and normally you only see sort of rice paddies and villages, right? Um, I think that's one of the reasons the film suffered a little bit because this film comes out in 1989 and they'd done all the Vietnam films by that point, pretty much. Yeah. Um, uh, Born on the 4th of July came out in 1989 and was a big hit, but bear in mind that was... A top that was Tom Cruise at the absolute height of his kind of box office fame, and and Jack Oliver Nicholson. Stone, yeah, and Oliver Stone was coming off the back of um, uh, Platoon, so he's you know that that he's just absolutely uh, dominant at the box office. This this was a much bigger risk. Michael J. Fox play you know playing out of his out of his comfort zone, but you do have the problem that. As well as, I think this film is extremely well made because Brian De Palma is so good at making films the right way and doing everything. I think that it's very difficult to portray the rape and torture of a woman, okay, in a way that the audience needs to see, look, this is what they did. Isn't that fucking despicable? That's horrible. But just, you know, you've got to tread such a fine line because if you're absolutely sort of, if you do it like, say, the girl with dragon tattoo, and it's completely explicit and 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 unrelenting, people go, "Well, that's taken a, a bit far. That was too much." And if you kind of don't show very much, are you kind of soft soaping it and kind of not making it look as bad as it really was? And I thought Brian De Palma got that absolutely right, and the, and the 
the moral quandary of the characters. John Leguizami plays, you know, another member of the unit who's got qualms about what's going on. Um, you know, the question is, is he going to take Michael J. Fox's side and all of this stuff? So it's really very well done. And yet it's kind of, it comes late in the day. I think people are a little bit Vietnamed out. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, the, the settings are things people have seen before. So, so as good as it is, it... It missed the bus. I think people who do watch it tend to go, oh, yeah, that was good. But it just it kind of just gets misses out. People want, want to watch a Vietnam film and watch Apocalypse Now, Platoon, maybe Born on the Fourth of July. Although I don't think I don't think that gets watched a lot these days, but it was hugely watched at the time. Um, so it just missed out a little bit. Did you um, what did you think of the beginning and ending that bookended the stories? Because the beginning and ending of the film, like the, the prologue and epilogue are set years later where Michael J. Fox is back in America and he's on the bus and he sees a, a Vietnamese girl, Vietnamese-American girl, um, and is reminded of the incident. You then see the whole incident and then you then at the end of it, sort of the flashback finishes and it's back with Michael J. Fox on the bus and they have a little ending scene with him. What did you think of those endings, beginning and end? Um. Yeah, I <laughs> It's one of those ones where they're, I think they're really trying to hammer home the kind of brutality. Yeah. Of well, for me anyway, that the how horrible the Vietnam War actually was, um, and I don't know, it felt a little bit unnecessary. Yeah, I think this this is the challenge that they had with this story, right? Is that they they felt like they needed to kind of show that this incident lives on, you know, that this is not just something that happened in the jungle and we can all forget about it now. And that the idea that Michael J. Fox's character is still haunted by this, I think is important. I, but it doesn't feel as powerful as the rest of the film. The, the, the ending particularly got criticism, partly because it just felt a little bit like, Oh, he says hello to the, the, the girl and, and, uh, it felt it felt like a sappy ending to to an otherwise very tough film, and the other criticism is is that you know at, at the end they just tell you what happened to the pretty much like they have a courtroom scene and they tell you what happens to 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 the to the people once they got to court, and I thought none of that at the end was as good as the bits leading up to it in that you know you see the combat in Vietnam you see the stress they're all under you see the the way that everyone's terrified of Sean Penn and you know and 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 some of them want to go on along with it and some of them are afraid to disagree with him you've then got the fact that michael j fox is you know has his life threatened and dismissed and told to fuck off by senior officers when he tries to report it and at that point it's really really powerful the ending doesn't have really the same power does it not for me no, no. um but i think the film gets its point across the film got its point across that this happened and it was only through the perseverance of one person that it even got reported and that a lot of people were prepared to turn a blind eye to that um so it was never going to be as as you know big a, a Vietnam film because it was really quite critical of the of the American conduct over there. Um, but yeah, I, I I thought it was a very good film overall. Although the the bits actually in Vietnam are by far the best parts. Yeah. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. 
This month we go back to where Double Reel began and cover another unrealized project by the great John Carpenter. This time it's the time he almost got to fill the most glaring gap in his filmography, the fact that he never directed a western. The one that got away for episode 37 is John Carpenter's Tombstone. So, first question James, have you seen the movie Tombstone? Uh, no, but I watched some of it. I didn't watch all of it because uh, the one of the dogs needed to go to the vet that day. But I watched some of it to kind of get the feel of what mm-hmm. they were trying to remake, I, sort of. Not remake, but do sure, a version of Sure, sure. And, and you've obviously heard of Wyatt Earp and the gunfight at the OK Corral and all of that, which is kind yeah. of one of the big kind of West, you know, stories. What's your relationship to Western films generally? I mean, I know you like the Leone films, and obviously I'm, I'm, I'm sure you'll have seen, you know, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven and stuff like that. But generally speaking, the Western as a genre, you know, for someone born in the 1990s, I'm just wondering what... what where, where, where that sits for you on the whole yeah they're okay um i enjoy some of them i enjoyed things like true grit and i suppose you could in, sort of include django in a western but yeah yeah django's a, a, django's a western yeah it's more of a southern i suppose if you're actually looking at the themes and plot that's true that's true yeah um but in, yeah. in, in terms of the physical setting it's not set in the west but it's got all the it's got all the trappings yeah, of a western because and yeah, shooting yeah. And all yeah, that yeah. Stuff, yeah um uh, they wouldn't be my go-to if we were to sit down and say what films you want to put on. It probably wouldn't be in my top five genres, mm-hmm. probably. Maybe in my top five, but yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, So, I mean, for my part, it's funny because you, you, your, your granny, uh, my mum, were two, two big influences on me growing up in terms of, of, of films with my mum and my dad. You know, naturally, my, my dad took me to see my first ever film. Uh, my mum is the one who said, okay, if you're in films, here is a list of films that you need to see. Sit down, I will put the video on. And, you know, she, you know so I saw Rear Window and Vertigo because of my mum. So both of them big influences. Now, my mum, she hated Westerns. And the reason she hated Westerns was that growing up, there was nothing but Westerns. You know, in the studio system up until like the end of the 1950s, right, it was so easy to make a Western because all the Hollywood studios had backlots, right? And California, you go a few miles outside California and it looks like the Wild West. It looks like a prairie. You have actual fucking tumbleweed, right? So you could just go out to the set, make a, make a cheap Western, stick it on and off you go. And there'll be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things. I mean, you, you know, and so growing up, my mum would get taken to a film and what's on, oh, it's a bloody Western. And her mum loved Westerns, so whenever the telly was on, it was a bloody Western and she'd had enough. By the time I'm a kid, Westerns are not being made that often. Anytime anyone made one, like Clint Eastwood in, in the 80s, Clint Eastwood went back and did Pale Rider and went, oh, wow, Clint Eastwood's doing Westerns again. Even Clint Eastwood wasn't making Westerns that often by that point. But there was a little bit of a revival Um and, and that, that was partly due to Dances with Wolves in 1990 because that was a huge hit. Um, it kind of showed that the Western was capable of, you know, you know, relatively serious filmmaking. And then on comes Unforgiven, which is a even more of an actual proper Western. I mean, Dances with Wolves is essentially a civil war or a post-civil war or Native American t- type thing. Uh, Unforgiven is like Clint Eastwood kind of looking back on the entire Western genre and then his career in Westerns and saying, right, I'm blowing this up. And he almost kind of said, this is like my final word on Westerns, which was Unforgiven. So for a time in the 90s, this these films are very popular again. Uh, and this is where John Carpenter comes in. Now, now you've seen a few John Carpenter films, haven't you, mate? Um, yeah. You've seen Escape from New York? Yep. And they- Escape from LA and... Um, Halloween 
Yeah, you know, you, seen Halloween. you're not seeing Big Big Trouble in Little China. Yes, I have seen Big Trouble in Little China. Sorry. What um, have you seen? They live. Is that the one with the? You put on sunglasses and it turns out everyone's an alien. I'm here to kick ass and chew bubblegum. Yeah. Yes, I've seen that. So there's always bits of a western in all of John Carpenter's films. I mean, essentially, like Big Trouble in Little China. Kurt Russell is sending up John Wayne. It says, imagine if John Wayne was a dimwit and didn't realise he's not actually the hero in the story, right? Huh. And it, his Snake Plissken character is clearly sort of riffing on Clint Eastwood, and even though that's a future futuristic sci-fi, there's a lot of Western-style stuff in that. And the, the, the sort of the film that really made John Carpenter's name prior to Halloween, Assault and Precinct 13, is, in, in many ways, the Western film Rio Bravo, just redone as a um, as an urban crime thriller. It's like across from Rio Bravo and Night of the Living Dead, right? And so he's always had, he loves westerns and he's always had western sort of filmmaking in his DNA. That's why he's so good with widescreen. But he never actually made one. Um, now I'll refer the, the audience back. Episode one of this podcast way, way back in the day, three years ago. The sound quality isn't very good. James isn't on it. So it's not as good as we have now. But the story of... Um, uh, the, the first ever one that got away we did was John Carpenter uh, essentially getting fired from his next film because they didn't like The Thing, which is baffling now because The Thing is one of the best horror movies of all fucking time. And imagine being told you can't make any more horror films after you've done that. Someone needed their fucking head examined. But it did change John Carpenter's career. Instead of being the big director he should have been in the 80s, he went more independent. Now, that made him do things that perhaps more interestingly would otherwise have done, but it just meant it was harder for him to do some of the big projects and it meant that a Western, which is an expensive undertaking nowadays because you don't have that studio backlot just sitting there, a little bit harder to do. Um, and when, when I did the Year of the Carpenter on his stuff, you can see Western inflection all over the way. He's obviously got an itch to scratch there, but he never actually got to make a film. So Tombstone, uh, is it's about the story of Wyatt Earp. I mean, this, one of the central events in it is the gunfight at the OK Corral, which Wyatt Earp is more famous for, but it's got sort of the instance leading up to that his relationship with his family him actually moving to the town of tombstone which is a real and very famous town in the west um it's got the aftermath of um the gunfight the okay corral because it actually led to a feud and a number of more gun battles and stuff going on with, with you know with his family and with kind of outlaws um it's a very famous sort of incident the westerns were getting back in back in vogue interestingly enough there was another um uh, there was another Wyatt Earp film being made at the time. Uh, Kevin Costner was meant to be doing it as a miniseries for HBO and then decided to want to make it as a movie. And he, he was competing with the people who were making Tombstone and tried to nobble it a little bit because um, he wanted his film to come out. So Wyatt Earp was suddenly a big thing in the early 90s. This film actually comes out in 1993. It was written by a guy called Kevin Jarre, um, who was uh, sort of an acclaimed writer, especially for the Civil War film he did, Glory. You know, James, that oh, film yeah, about yeah. like the... Denzel Washington won the yeah, first black yeah. battalion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he, he was doing quite well as a script writer. His, his own scripts were, were, were doing well. He was script doctoring for other people. So he was he was in a good place in the industry at the time. And he wrote this script called Tombstone and everyone fucking loved it, right? They said, this is the script we've got to make. It's brilliant. Um, and... It wasn't perfect. It had a lot of exposition, some scenes that didn't work, but that's not uncommon. You know, f scripts get written and then they get kind of trimmed and re sort of revised and changed, you know, when, when you actually get down to the to, to making the movie. Um, 
There's a lot of support for this film from some people in the industry. Um, even though Kevin Costner, who's a really big star at the time, you know, he basically put pressure on Universal to reject this film, so they had to go to another studio. But Jar had some backing to, to make this film, and he wanted to direct it. We've talked about this on other pods, haven't we, mate, about how writers get sick of just sitting in the back and not having any control over their story. And it's often why a lot of writers want to direct. So his idea was to direct this film, and he was a first-time director. Now, there's a number of selling points of this version of the story. Jarre was really into the historical detail. He really developed the world of the film. He really brought the town of Tombstone to life, right? The fact that, and I didn't know this before I watched this film, Paris fashions were being imported and got as far as the Wild West and the women would, they would sell Paris uh, Paris fashion like dresses off the back of wagons to, you know, ladies in Tombstone, which was a boom town at the time. There was lots of money in this town. Um, Wyatt Earp came there after a period of time as a sheriff and a lot, there were a lot of famous events of Wyatt Earp prior to this. He didn't want to be a sheriff and he came here to kind of settle down and make some money, but it's an iconic town with a lot of stuff going on. And Kevin Shaw's script is full of the detail of where they lived, how they lived, how people made money, why everyone was coming to Tombstone. So strong, strong script, a lot of historical detail, which people are going to find interesting, a new take on the story, getting deep into the, you know, rather than uh, Wyatt Earp the gunfighter and nothing else, he was going to give you Wyatt Earp the gunfighter and his, he, he came to Tombstone with his brothers and he was trying to, he was trying to get into business and he got dragged back into his old life. There's a lot of good stuff going on. He assembles a really good cast. Kurt Russell is Wyatt Earp. Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday, possibly his best performance. Michael Bean is one of the main baddies, probably given his best performance. Um, and in the supporting cast, Charlton Heston, Powers Booth, Bill Paxton, Sam Elliott, Dana Delaney, Billy Bob Thornton, early role for Michael Rooker, Robert Mitchum narrating. And it's quite a lively film. It's got some great scenes. It did quite well at the box office. It outperformed William uh, Costner's version of Earp, both critically and commercially. Yeah. Sorry, Kevin Costner. Fucking who the hell's William Costner? Um, he, he outperformed Costner's version, both with the critics and at the box office. So you might very well ask, James, and some you know listeners asked, what's the problem then? Why not stick with the version we've got? I mean, from what you saw of the film, did you see anything that said, actually, that you know, did you think, oh, this is fine as it is, or did you see anything that might um, say, oh, I'd, I'd love to have seen like the, the master direct this? Um... I don't, I don't rightly know. I think I'm, I'm starting to kind of lean into that criticism at the, that at the start that maybe it was a bit past John Carpenter's heyday. But I don't think anyone could just be written off because as mm. we've seen with people like Nick Cage, mm-hmm. so they've spent lots of time making shit, but they can come back and still make some good films. Yeah, I mean the the thing is the time frame that this film would have been made, it would have been the next film he did after They Live, and he's still strong he's still got his powers and he did whip in the mouth of madness in 1994 it only goes downhill after that so while i agree with the listener's point about john carpenter only being john carpenter in a certain period of time my argument is that he was still in that period of time right now um the argument i'm going to make for this um the, the background to this to be fair is a little bit thin John Carpenter knew about this film and he wanted to direct it and he lobbied to direct it and there's an in, there's a, an interview he gave in the late 1990s that said he was in talks and didn't quite get to make the film so it's not like he started out making the film and got fired but it's a film he wanted to make and Kurt Russell is his guy so there's a little bit of kind of imagination required to imagine what if John Carpenter had made this but he, he was in talks to do it or he did lobby to do it so there what there is a there is a parallel universe somewhere where John Carpenter got to make this film, and I, I, you know, I would like to explore that. 
the reason I like to explore that because the, the the making of the film was troubled and explains why things got the way down that they did. Kevin Jar's a first-time director and he struggled from day one with the production. There's so much going on. Period detail, logistics, action. You can't Enormous go to... Enormous cast. Like. Exactly. You can't go to the real town of Tombstone because it's a tourist trap now and it looks old and fucked and you're trying to do Tombstone when it's a new... See, we talk about these places now as the Old West, right? In 1880, this was the New West. These towns were freshly built and new and vibrant. There's lots of money. There's lots of stuff going on. So you had to build all of that, right? The script needed tweaking. And he, his lack of experience showed. W within a month, the film was running behind schedule and over budget. It needed someone stronger to handle the actors and all the complexities of the production. He's got ambitions to direct the film like John Ford, which is a tall order, you know, even if you're an experienced director, but he's directing his first movie. He's struggling to get all the, the scenes. There's lots of delays and holds up. There starts to be some discontent amongst the actors. He starts to disagree with Kurt Russell about how the film should get made. And eventually, Kamjar gets fired. Now, urgent workers needed to get the film back on track. And now here's what's happened. Now, there is, I'm not going to explore, oh, what if they brought in John Carpenter to patch things up? Because I, I don't want to explore that. I, I'm going to make the argument for John Carpenter making the film from the beginning. But what happened was, when they needed the film to get back on track, here's what Kurt Russell did. At the end of the 80s, he worked with um, Stallone, right? And Stallone had told him about how a director called George Cosmatis, who he'd worked with on Rambo and Cobra, and allowed Stallone, who Stallone had the juice to direct the Rocky films, but often in other studio productions, he the studio was like nervous about Stallone being the director. So Stallone's got director credits in some of his films. And other films, when he wanted to be the one calling the shots and essentially the director, but the studio wouldn't let him have the director as his name, he would get George Cosmatis. Because George Cosmatis would essentially allow Stallone to ghost direct and actually be the one who says, this is how we're going to do things. And Kurt Russell at that point, he he put a lot into this film. A lot of his sort of capital, he was kind of the, the one driving this. He he was just getting to the point where he could be a big movie star. He This film, he could not afford this film to fuck up. So he said, right, I'm calling the shots. So he got George Cosmatis hired on the understanding that George Cosmatis would let him, to all intents and purposes, direct, or at least determine how the film would be directed. Um, he was also affordable, experienced, he could get a film from A to B. Um... So accounts differ on how much Kurt Russell was really the director. Michael Bean said he never saw Kurt Russell give him any personal direction before a scene or anything. So there's there's a few apocryphal stories flying around here. But they were also trimming and changing the script on the fly, having to economise. And my argument is, is that why this film works, right? It's it's a, it's a it, Look, it's basically a good script. It's, it's a very good idea for a film and all of that. But I think this film is clunky. It takes well over an hour to get to the gunfight at the OK Corral. It doesn't really balance, here is the story of Wyatt Earp and his family and why they're in Tombstone and why he doesn't want to be a sheriff anymore. And then the final act of the film is really rushed. And for a two-hour, ten-minute film, the final scenes after the OK Corral where he's kind of hunting people down and shooting the bad guys, it's really rushed. You've got this, mon this sort of series of montages where quite a lot of the time you see Kurt Russell or one of his gang shoot one of the bad guys and you don't even know which bad guy it is because they haven't really established. Do you know what I mean? It's not meaningful. Apart from when you know when you know Michael Bean and Powers Booth and some of these other ones where you've kind of got to know this. There's a lot of um, uh, people in the gang. We just go, oh, we shot that guy, did he? Fair enough. There's no. Um, it's not meaningful because they haven't managed to kind of give you all the characters properly. Um, and uh, too many characters come and go. The the uh, in sort of two thirds of the way of the film that his brothers just leave. 
and this posse goes, hey, we'll work with you, Wyatt Earp, and you've not really met any of those characters, so who cares, right? So there are some structural flaws in this film, and the ending is a little bit rushed. It's still good. There's some good gunfights, and, and Kurt Russell is bloody excellent, and Val Kilmer is superb. So it's just, it's a good film that you can see could have been a, long, a lot better. And with John Carpenter, here's the argument I made for John Carpenter in this film. One, he, he loved Westerns. He knew Westerns. He tried to do a film called El Diablo, but when he wrote the script, it was the early 80s, and he was only seen as a horror director, and there was this whole, should he be doing a Western right now, you know? Uh, he really wanted to do this. He wanted to do a Western, and there's two things. One, there are things in this film, there are some shots, there are some widescreen shots, there are some shots of like the, you know, people coming out of doorways and stuff. You go, well, Kurt Russell has obviously learned something while he was in John Carpenter's films because that's what that shot looks like. And if that's what you're going to do, why not get the real thing, right? Um, also, Westerns were massively out of fashion for most of like John Carpenter's like peak years. So this would have been his chance to actually do one. He wouldn't have had a chance to do one in the 80s, really. Never had any backing for it. And also, this is what I've said about John Carpenter before, and I've banged on about him, but this is what you got when, you know, the Firestarter project that he should have done but got fired from, the other films that he's worked on. John Carpenter knows how to get a script right. He often wrote the films himself, but when he got someone else to write a script for him, like The Thing, like Firestarter, the writer who, who worked with John Carpenter said, he'd gi you'd give him the script you'd written, yeah? And you'd say, oh, look, I'm happy with the script. I think it's really good. And John Carpenter would take it and he would polish it. And he would give you it back, and it would be pretty much what you'd written. It didn't, like, it didn't feel like he changed everything, but you'd look at it and go, "Oh shit, it, it really works now." Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like some, it's like someone in a band bringing the song they've written to the rest of the band, and then the other people in the band go, "Yeah, this is really good, but what if I do it like this? What if I do it like that?" And you go, "Oh shit, it works now." And John Carpenter is the absolute master of that, and this film needed someone to get that pacing right. The other argument is. John Carpenter is great at concise filmmaking. So if you've got a lot of story to tell, he's the fucking best person to do this. And in Big Trouble in Little China, this is it's a scene of Big Trouble in China that people tend to forget because it's right at the beginning and the rest of the film is about the actual kind of fancy fighting. The opening five minutes of Big Trouble in Little China, you see Kurt Russell in his truck arriving in San Francisco, going to Chinatown, down to the docks where all of these different people live and work and some people are taking deliveries, some people are loading food onto trucks, some people are taking delivery of live animals, you've got money changing hands, you've got all this going. And in five minutes, you know how the the internal economy of Chinatown and the San Francisco docks and truck deliveries work. And that someone who can just concisely show you excitingly, vibrantly, but also concisely how a whole town and how a whole economy and how the different dynamics of the town work that's what you needed because then you could go right brilliant we've established the story now let's have the gunfights and you would have had time and you would have had room to do this and also John Carpenter he knew Howard Hawks he knew John Ford he knew Rio Bravo he would have made all of the elements just work together and a good film would have been great so I'm imagining that this is me making this argument I'm imagining that early on Kurt Russell puts his foot down and says Kevin Jarre I love you it's a great script but this needs an experienced director yeah call John Carpenter, tell him not to bother making memoirs of an invisible man, which he only did because he hadn't had made a, made a film for a couple of years and the you know he was working with Chevy Chase, he's a knobhead. Forget that. <laughs> Come and work with Kurt Russell again. Trim the script. Make it work narratively. Work well with Russell and the other actors. Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer. These actors are great. He would have made that ensemble work the way he's made other ensembles work. And I think what you'd have had is you've had 
less incident in the plot, but more meaningful. You'd have had John Carpenter's feel for Westerns. John Carpenter's widescreen photography on the big old Wild West and his experience, you know, making a good film actually work properly and completely from beginning to end. I don't think this changes John Carpenter's career the way some of the other ones we talked about here. I did talk about on the early kind of uh, the Firestar one. That's 1983. John Carpenter's career is completely different if that one had come off and he was unfairly fired from that. There's another one that got away. We're going to do one of these days. Can't I, I can't make this a John Carpenter podcast, but so it'll, it'll be a while before we do this. Uh, Shadow Company, where he did like a, a, it was going to be an action horror about um, uh, about a, a, an elite uh, uh uh, fighting unit which would have made his late 80s very different this is really just saying you know what John Carpenter did some good films it would have been great for him to have done one more and that's why I would argue I want to see John Carpenter do um, uh, do Tombstone and I think in a parallel universe that's what happened and, and, it, and it was a better world as a result so that's my monologue on why John Carpenter should have directed this film have I convinced you, feel, you mate? do you feel better? Now? yeah I feel much better <laughs> Um, yeah, I think the film, from what I saw, it does it pays so much attention to detail, and it gets kind of, and because it does that, it's also like oh, but we've got a plot to tell everyone as well, mm-hmm. and I feel like if you had a bit more of an experienced director, and you can't really blame Kevin Jar because it seems like it was kind of his, it was his baby, wasn't it? It was his like understand why he wanted to do it. So he was, yeah, I think he was just trying to cram too much, and it seems like he would have lent himself very well if he just made this a TV series. I know well, that wasn't the thing back in 1993. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It is just too much. I think it was just too much for him to handle. So, yeah, I think you've... No, you make you've a good point, mate. Good argument for... Uh, just, I mean, John Carpenter was obviously interested in this, so it would have been good for him to do it. But I think anyone with just a little bit more directing chops yeah, would yeah, have given yeah. this a better... Yeah. I, yeah, I, I know, yeah, I know what you're saying. It's interesting what you say about it being a series because the, the Wyatt Earp film that came out a year later with Costner in it, it was... Um, it was over three hours long, and I think it was directed by Kevin Reynolds again, or maybe it was Lawrence Kasdan. But anyway, it's 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 Costa with his old cronies, and it was originally a, a, going to be a, a, an HBO series. And I remember my, my my dad and I went to see that at the cinema, and we kind of kind of liked it. I think we liked it better than a lot of people who, who sort of gave it a bit of a critical drubbing. But we both looked at it and said, if that had been a four or five hour mini series telling the whole story, it would have been much much better. Uh, it's weird because Costner actually had the chance to do that with HBO back then and chose to do a movie instead um, because I think that the people's attitude to film and TV was very different back then. But you look at Kevin Costner now doing Yellowstone as a TV series and you think, yeah, spot on, you know? Exactly. Him getting under the skin of a character like that, you know, a, a, a morally complex character. Um, yeah, I think... M- one, maybe one of these days someone will do the definitive Wyatt Earp series, but I think there's been a lot of other sort of stuff like Deadwood and stuff, which has really dug into the Western genre. But um, yeah, so James is arguing for any experienced director, understandably. I'm, because of my sort of personal allegiance, um, I'm arguing for Carpenter, but that's why this is the one that got away. We close the features episode of the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an old classic. But every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. 
Later on, we will also discuss a remake restoration. Once we've finished asking if a remake was unnecessary and should be removed, we will suggest a remake that should happen because it needs to be done right this time. This month, we look at how a famous World War II film made in the 1970s was redone with 21st century resources. The remake hate watch for episode 37 is Midway. So, James, uh, obviously, you know your history, you like your history. Uh, battles of the Pacific and World War II, generally speaking, and where Midway fits in with that. Is that an area of yours, yours interest in that? Not really, no. I know of Midway, and I know it was um, a sort of aerial naval battle, but it wasn't really anything I covered. Yeah. World War II in general wasn't covered as much when I was at school. It's just kind of things that I've picked up just by doing a little bit of reading. Just yeah, I mean... I've been bored or whatever, but... Um, yeah, it seems like a kind of forgotten battle, doesn't it? Yeah, Not I mean... Not for Americans, but yeah. definitely just in general. Yeah, I mean, the wider world doesn't know this as well. I mean, I mean, even when the first film came out in the 70s, it was called Midway in America, because everyone knows what that means. And in the rest of the world, it was called the Battle of Midway, because they went, oh, does everyone else know about this this battle, you know? Yeah, because there were folk in Chatham who thought a film had been made about them. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, the other thing to say is, right... I'm calling this a remake because there was a movie called Midway, which was about the Battle of Midway in the 70s. And now there's another movie called Midway about, about the Battle of Midway. But I mean, it's 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 a, it's a major event in, in one of the biggest wars that's ever taken place. So do, do you agree that another another film just made about the same event is, is strictly speaking, a remake? Um, I... I suppose it's a bit of a grey area, but yes, they've obviously made this film because there will be a certain affinity from people that watched it back in the seventies. Yeah, that went to see it or wanted like another film. Mm-hmm. Or wanted or not wanted another film, but wanted to watch it because they'd seen the original film. Mm-hmm. I should say. Um, so yeah, you've got to say it's a bit of a remake. It's it's hard because if someone tomorrow um, goes and does, I don't know, it's an example, French Connection, but in twenty twenty. 2024 by the time it comes out mm-hmm. that is a remake yeah you're allowed to, you're allowed to make a remake even if it's shit that's why we do the podcast but if it's a historical event it's suppose it kind of allows itself to be interpreted in many different ways i suppose yeah. do are we calling the hbo series for harry potter a remake you know what i mean it's yeah i it's mean weird it's yeah i, I know what you mean i mean on the whole i would say unless you're telling for example if you told the story of saving private ryan again as in you know the the mission to save you know matt damon's Carbon character copy, yeah. that's a remake it, another film that, that depicts d-day um you know saving private ryan wasn't the first film set you know as, as part of the d-day operation so it, it, I, I think it's a gray area but let's do some background on the Battle of Midway. This this happens relatively early in the war. And I think one of the things, I mean, like you, mate, a lot of this history I studied when I was at school and, and uni was would tend to be about how war started and then the aftermath of the war rather than who won this battle and why they won this battle. That would be something I'd have to go and kind of read up on, on my own bat. But my, my dad, your granddad, was, you know, he's very knowledgeable about this stuff. He tends to really, re, you know, read up about these things and, and know it inside out. Um, so he'd he'd be a, you know a good person. I did I did actually sort of text him about these about these these films. He he thought they were actually complementary to each other, which I thought was an interesting perspective because they they tell the same story slightly different ways. But the story itself, 
December 1941, Pearl Harbor, America's forced in the war by Japan's attack on their, you know, their base in Hawaii. They're caught on the hop, like a lot of the, you know, the non-fascist powers were. You know, the, these, you know, the the, the Axis were, powers were rearming, and we were trying to avoid war, uh, and we got dragged into it anyway. Early in t- 1942, Japan is hitting the Pacific with their version of blitzkrieg tactics, and the Allies are reeling. They take Singapore. They, you know, they've taken China. They 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 take a lot of territory very quickly because they go in, they hit hard, and, and no one no one's ready. America is trying to hold hold things together. They've got their fleet is still a little bit small and made up of older equipment. They're just trying to keep it together. They're trying to you know fight against a, an aggressive opponent that's kind of been gearing up for this. Um, the first thing that happens, kind of makes things you know starts to change things in the war in early forty two, is it's what's known as the Doolittle raid, where they managed to get some carriers quite far forward get some bombers with quite a long range, you know, absolutely the extent of their kind of range, and they managed to bomb Tokyo. Now, mainland Japan has never been attacked or bombed in that way before, and this comes as quite a shock to the Japanese. They went, shit, the Allies can actually bomb us at home, and they actually hit the, the Emperor's palace in Tokyo. It's like, fucking hell, they can hurt us. And they realised that Midway, which is a group of islands right in the middle of the Pacific, it's technically seen as part of the Hawaiian Islands, but that's political, right? So the Americans can claim it as theirs. It's a set of remote islands right far forward, right in the middle of the Pacific, which is it's enough for the US to supply their fleet and get a foothold in, a, in an ocean as big as the Pacific. Japan realises that's a problem for them, so they, their, their plan is to take Midway, destroy any ships in anywhere anywhere near it and they think that'll strike a huge blow against the US fleet. It could set America back a year or more in their war effort. It could and Japan could get into a winning position by then or at least a position where people will kind of say, shit, peace treaty, I've had enough of this. If not, you know, the US get you know, if they don't manage to take midway, the US gets time, has time to get its industrial and military might up and running, which the um the Japanese were very aware of. Uh, Yamamoto, who was the main kind of, you know, admiral in all this, felt that Japan couldn't win a long war against the Americans because over time their industrial strength would, 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 would just, you know, take on. And with a bit of luck, with a bit of clever tactics and a lot of code breaking, the US won. They were able to decode messages that, that said that the war was, that the, that the attack on Midway was coming. Um, a little bit of help from Enigma, but also some clever code breaking by their own people. Um, it's their version of the Battle of Britain. It doesn't win the war, but it keeps the minute and sets the enemy back. And by the end of 1942, as in Europe, the Allies believe the war has turned in their favour. So it's a hugely important event, right? So the 1976 Midway, did, did you get a chance to watch any of that uh, in the build-up to this pod, mate? Yeah, I watched it. It wasn't my... Th- not all of it, but I started it and it's, it's just dated. It wasn't my thing at all. But I put it on and thought, right, I know exactly what type of film this is. Mm. It's that kind of film in the 70s depicting war um and that gave me a kind of good basis for watching this one so having watched the old one i could almost guess what the new one was going to be like you know that way you think right this is exactly like everything we've ever seen before and now we're going to see a remake do you know what i mean like pearl harbor felt sort of similar to this midway film Mm -hmm. like you just knew exactly how it was going to play out yeah, I mean, there's pluses and minuses to the the original film. Um, it's kind of got that like solid uh, sort of seventies kind of feel. What makes it, in some ways, it was an old fashioned film for the seventies because it was kind of a straight ahead depiction of like a you know big war event. You know, it's not 
it's not like what Scorsese and William Friedkin were making at the time, but it, you can tell it's the 70s because it actually got into the wider context of the internment of Japanese Americans. It wasn't exactly flag-waving in that sense. Um, it's, it's a good summation of the context of the battle. What it does is it shows you like the officers on both sides saying, and what's just happened and what needs to happen now, send out the troops. So you kind of, it uses those scenes to kind of keep the audience clear on what's happened. It is very much the kind of officer's story. It's like what people in high command said and did, and there's much fewer sort of, you know, normal on the ground type characters. Um, it's got a big star cast, Charlton Heston, Henry Fonda, James Coburn, you know, loads of people I recognise the, the usual time. suspects going. Literally every Japanese-American actor of the day makes an appearance, including Mr. Miyagi from The Karate Kid, um, talking in his real accent, because um, he sounded like an American. <laughs> yeah, it's the most jarring thing about Pat Morita is that he just sounds like he's from Detroit. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, because he spent all his life in America, he sounds like, he doesn't sound like Mr. Miyagi, unsurprisingly. Um, it's... The interesting thing about this is that uh, the Midway film in 1976, it had a relatively low budget for what it was trying to do. It had a $4 million budget, which in 1976, it's not tiny, but the first Star Wars film cost $12 million, And A Bridge Too Far, which came out a year later than Midway, uh, cost $25 million. So we're sort of seeing that jump, aren't we? Yeah, massive blockbusters, uh, you know, hugely expensive, uh, would be... Superman 1978, $50 million. But $25 million is a very big budget back then. $4 million is... It's not a lot for one of the biggest kind of naval and aerial battles of World War II, right? Which is why they rely quite heavily on, like, stock footage. They basically used every piece of colour film of, of World War II kind of combat that they could fit in. <clears throat> um, but it's solid. It tells you what happens in the war. It's got one or two bits about the Codebreaker stuff. It, it's it's generally solid piece of work. Um, what did you think of the remake? I personally, I was skeptical going into it. Twelve rated war films are always a bit, eh. I, you know. I was also skeptical about whether films like this can be done anymore, and I was skeptical about it being directed by Roland Emmerich. So I went in going. It's probably why I missed it. I, I didn't watch it, you know, when it first came out because I went eh, Midway by Roland Emmerich. Am I bothered? Um, so I was skeptical going in to watch it. I don't know about you. Yeah, but the thing is, when you see Roland Emmerich and you see that it is a film about Midway, and there's already been a film about Midway nearly 40 years prior, you don't... I didn't expect much. And yeah. when I watched it, I thought, this isn't going to be any Oscar winner. Um, and and it wasn't. And I wasn't, I wasn't annoyed by that. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I think I might have been annoyed if I'd gone to the cinema... And I'd taken me, my partner, the two dogs, and all that kind of thing, and spent all this money and going and seeing it. But I didn't, so I didn't really care. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it wasn't going to be great. You knew it wasn't going to be great. You saw Roland Emmerich. What, what did you expect? Like, nobody yeah. expects... If it was if it was a director with a bit of chops about them, like, say, Christopher Nolan carried on his... After he does Oppenheimer, he carries on his, like, World War Two depictions, and he does Midway, and it was absolutely dross then, yeah, fair enough, because you'd expect more. You're expecting me, I more, didn't yeah. Expect, yeah, I didn't expect anything from this, and I got nothing. Yeah. I mean, it would have to have been particularly bad if I expected nothing, and it was still really bad. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought this film had a couple of things going for it. I think it was very solid historically. It, it's an ac- accurate depiction of, of what happened. I mean, for example, you know, one of the Jonas Brothers in it, and he jumps in the jumps in the plane and starts firing a gun and kind of battles off the zero. That's literally what happened. 
So a lot of the incidents that, that took place in this film are, you know, very, very close to what happened in, in real life. Um, and I like how it told a lot more stories of the rank and file officers and what the actual air and sea battles were like, because because they have the visual effects to do it, you actually get to see what it would have been like for a pilot actually dive bombing a carrier with all of that anti-aircraft like fire coming coming back up at him. And I thought that was good. Um, what did you think of the visual effects and CGI generally? I mean, th- 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 there were some people who were quite critical of that. What did you think of it? Yeah, they weren't great, but again... But... I think we're we're kind of at this point in Hollywood where CGI is getting rushed a little bit, mm-hmm. and if Roland Emmerich's in charge of a film, I do not expect any of it to be well well done. Yeah, I mean, it this film had a hundred million dollar budget and was independently financed, so I think they were probably they probably didn't have all the money they would have liked to make the movie. Which I don't think. Sorry, I don't think anyone hates this film more than. the the fucking studio because this must have been an absolute flop how much did this make at the box office i think it did i think it did like 150 so it won't have made huge did not money make its money back it didn't yeah, make its money back no. because of advertising and all that stuff. yeah it probably it's probably made its money back now through like home viewing sales and and and, and that sort of thing and streaming um but yeah it was it wasn't a huge success um I tell you what I did think was quite good. I think you got more of what the code breakers did to um, to kind of help help win the battle, and and, and I thought that was a, a, I thought that part was good. In terms of the cons, it definitely tries to tell too much story. You actually get the attack on Pearl Harbor, and then you get the Doolittle raid, which I think was they bring in like Aaron Eckhart to play Doolittle and 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 show his his bombing raid take place, and then him trying to escape through China. You just think this is the Battle of Midway, and you've just spent a fair amount of your running time and money portraying the six months leading up to it. It's what the listener message said. It's like, they've, you know, they've tried to cram too much in. I, I think that was definitely a, a mistake, especially when you haven't got unlimited money. I think they would have been far better concentrating just on Midway. That's one thing that the original film did better was well, it, it gave you a good summary of how we got to where we got to. It didn't say, let's not bother with the Pearl Harbor attack. That's been done. You know, Michael well, Bay would have it. cost fucking seventy million at that point because you save all that money on doing fucking Pearl Harbor again. Well, I think I think you could have um, I think you could have explored more in your own actual story and spent the additional money just making those those you know visual effects just a little bit better in some places. Um, the other the other thing is I think there's some slightly cringy flag waving dialogue. I mean, it's interesting because I think America's gone a little bit backwards on this because in 1976 it was like yes it's good that we won the war and you know the fascists were wrong and it's you know World War Two was a good thing that we that we fought it and we won it but it's not the same kind of you know jingoistic flag waving and America's kind of attitude to to, to wars like this now is a little bit more like it. They don't even mention the internment of Japanese, um, you know, Japanese American civilians. They, there's a lot. There's a couple of very cringy bits like, "Son of a bitch like him is why we're going to win this war," and you just think, "Ah, oh, that's just just cringy." And on, I think some of it was, some of it was quite good, I have to say. But it, it's just, um, it was really quite bog standard in what it did. Although I, I, I do, I do think it was quite interesting. What what what, what my dad said was that he, he likes the fact that someone's done a film where you actually get more visual effects showing what the actual battle was like, given that the first film couldn't do that, and they do complement each other in that way. But it's no classic, is it? No, and this isn't me detracting from people that think this is a remake. Hey, watch! There must be somebody out there that really loves the original and wanted to see this, but. I think we've got to the point now where remake hate watches 
we we almost know ourselves when you and I decide the the remake hit watch and you message me going this is what we're going to watch for the remake hit watch I go okay but you know it's going to be shit you know what <laughs> I mean like this is why we kind of started that remake restoration thing because it'd be kind of like oh wouldn't it be good if they redid I don't know something that was really bad and they could like say they did uh, um, Equilibrium again but they didn't do it around about the time of the Matrix how would yeah. you do it and why do you know what I mean but yeah. You know they're gonna. You know it's going to be shit. If someone says, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna redo Bridge on the River Kwai," uh, yeah, that's gonna be shit. You just you just know, and that's not me detracting from this film being absolutely awful. But maybe maybe that's maybe why I didn't. It's not that I didn't hate it, but I didn't. I, you I you went in with low it. expectations in yeah, the first exactly. place. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, really, this 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 thing is to explore the phenomenon of, of remakes and and just kind of you know look into it. And I I think it is right that what we're doing now is we're spending a little less time on on the remake we don't like and and then getting into a remake that we do. So good segue, I think, is the remake restoration that we want to do this this week. Uh, this was my suggestion, but the idea was that we could do a uh, someone should remake or should have remade uh, Waterworld to get it right. So the big Kevin Costner, famously, you know, expensive uh, flop at the time, but, you know, made its money back in the end, you know, eventually uh, sort of Mad Max at sea epic. Um, you presumably, when did you first see Waterworld? I think we spoke about it, not maybe in around 2010. And I thought, oh, Jesus, that's a lot of money to spend on a film that's that bad. So I put it on and I didn't finish it because it's, fucking boring it's terrible i did not like that film so it, it's it's a good idea it's a film that i mean I, I i went back and watched it for for you know ahead of this and i sort of went you know there's, there's some of the outposts at sea the you know the post-apocalypse like li, li, living on on floating towns at sea and some of the ideas went, oh, there's, there's a i definitely feel like there's a good film in there I think the problem that you've got is Kevin Costner was going through every every big star goes goes through this. We've got that we've got a one that got away. We're going to do one of these days with with Bruce Willis, where his ego literally killed a film. Um, and, and and this was a case of Kevin Costner wanted to do you know Waterworld, didn't think that anything could stop him. And the, the 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 story that he does, and the control that he has over a film, and the directors that he hires, and all the decisions that he make are all about him controlling everything and that it's a monument to their ego rather than a a, a a telling of the story that needs to be told which is really where it falls down i mean it's directed by kevin reynolds who i mean how many kevin reynolds films have you seen oh not many i don't think have i seen any of them have you seen robin hood prince of thieves oh yeah did not like that film so he's he's never done anything of great of great note. I mean, it, Robin Hood Prince of These was a big hit because you know Kevin Costner was a big star at the time, and and people wanted a a, a Robin Hood story really. Um, apart from that, he did um, his version of Count of Monte Cristo is okay, uh, and that's about it really. He did a film called Tristan and Isolde, which was a massive flop. Rapa Nui, which which flopped. He's not he's not a a, a particularly strong director. Um, 
So if we're, if we're going to redo this, the first thing I'm going to say, if you want to redo Waterworld, I think it needed James Cameron. I don't know who, who you think should have directed it, but I think it needed James Cameron. He does love the water, doesn't he? But He, he also, knows how to do it. James Cameron does love the water, but he also he can just do a film on such a massive budget and scale. Like That was the thing that blew me away with the new Avatar, is that the scale of it and just how good the picture was on it. That's just... That's something you only get from James Cameron, in my opinion. Yeah, you see, even Titanic, which I don't really like, yeah, you can see where the money went. It cost $200 million, but you get a $200 million film. And that's part of the problem with this film, is that it originally had like a $100 million budget, and the budget expanded to $180 million because of reshoots and a set that got destroyed by the sea, like a storm at sea and all this kind of stuff. So at the end, even if the film... There, there are scenes in the film that work, and there are some good like battle sequences in Water, Waterworld. But all the time, you're sitting there going, this never needed to cost $180 million. You, you don't get $180 million worth of film. Now, David Cameron makes films that cost that much on purpose. So if you if he, if he spends... David Cameron. Sorry, David Cameron. I'm fucking doing this. Why am I doing this? James Cameron, when James Cameron makes a, you know spends makes films that expensive on purpose. So when you when he when you get a film that costs one hundred and eighty million dollars, it looks like it costs one hundred and eighty million dollars. And the the other thing that, that James Cameron is good at, this is why you know it, it's it's the criticism, but also the strength of the Avatar stories that the stories themselves are very simplistic. But the fact is, you spend a lot of money, and you need to make six hundred million dollars from. Uh, from the film, he he realizes that to 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 make a movie for a really wide audience, you, you you make a simple story, but you make it really really have a big impact. He gives you a big spectacle and a story that takes you through from A to B, and I, I think he could have done this. Um, there's just generally speaking, thematically, Waterworld. There's some. I mean, the, the cast is quite good. I mean, there's there's talk of like you know, Kevin Costner trying playing this dour and humorless character again. I think. I think in in a, in a in a stronger director's hands, I think you could make that work. I think having a character who's who's, who's initially unsympathetic but comes round to being a hero, that's fine. That works as an arc. It just needs to be made to work in the story. Um, I think you could have just got for for a hundred million hundred eight million dollars. You could have got you should have got much better visuals, and you know a more fully realized kind of story and just. The stuff, there's some silly stuff going on in this film that kind of drags you out of it. Like they're all smoking uh, like cigarettes and cigars. Now, 500 years in the future, in a world that's covered in water, where are they growing the tobacco leaves for those? Uh, <laughs> and and where are they getting all the um, all the fuel for their jet skis? You know, apparently they're in a they're in an upturned oil tanker, but it's not an upturned petrol tanker, is it? It's an oil tanker. And the thing is, this film is obviously like influenced by Mad Max, but one of the one of the best one of the best sort of installments of the Mad Max you know franchise is where there is an oil refinery in the desert, and because it's an oil refinery and they're producing fuel, everyone wants to take it over. Yeah, so some of the logistics of the future, I think, just really more fully realised. You know, rather than at the end of the day, they took they took a simple small idea and it got bigger and bigger because the ego of the star got bigger and bigger and because the director kind of lost control of the production. So really, Waterworld just needed to be done properly by someone who understood how to make a film at this scale, right? Yeah. Is there anything else you would have done differently about it? Um. No, I think the the idea when you need that kind of base idea to start with, and that's solid, and it's just the the way they did it wasn't the best 
you know what I mean? So yeah. I think they need someone who appreciates the scale and can just take the base story but do something better with it. Yeah. But yeah, that's pretty much it. It's not it's not even a big um I don't think it's a big like restoration that they need to do. It's uh yeah, it, it just needed... It, it, the, the, the thing is, right, Waterworld was kind of patched together because it, it didn't it didn't mean to cost as much as it did and they were kind of reshooting and trying to make it work by the end. Whereas if someone from beginning to end is in control, you just have a story that works. You're more likely to have a story that works. And then it's stuff like the details. Like there's, there's bits where the, the, the baddies and their jet skis are like staying underwater for ages. So again, where do they get the scuba tanks 500 years in the future, you know? Yeah. Now, if you are going to have people with that hardware in the future, you're just going to need to like have someone who's good at fully realizing a futuristic world in which that's possible, rather than just oh, and that happens and that happens and that happens because it didn't. It, it just fell down on the details time and again. Um, I like the cast though. I think Jean Triplehorn was was good. I think she's she's not very well she's not very well served by the story and the script and the direction. Whereas James Cameron is a bit better with female characters than that, isn't he? Um, you know, uh, Linda Hamilton would, would attest to that in, in the Terminator films. It's just, again, it's just, if, if you could just reset and say to someone, I mean, I've, I've worked on projects of different natures and different scales, but I've worked on projects where someone thinks it's going to take six months and cost this much. And you keep telling them it's not going to take six months, it's going to cost 12. And it's going to cost three times what you think it is. Why don't we plan to do that from the beginning and actually get value for money? And that's really that, that's really what Waterworld needs. It needed someone to actually do the film that that, that eventually that eventually happened. And and also, don't don't go out to sea to film in storm season. Seems to be like and Steven Spielberg warned Costner about that. He said, Don't go out to sea. There is stuff that you should do in a tank because out to sea is you got no control, you know? And Spielberg learned that the hard way on Jaws, you know. But Kevin Costner in the mid-90s just wasn't prepared to be told by anyone, you know? And I, I, I like Kevin Costner. I like him in films, and I, and I think he's very good at, at with the right character. But I think all stars seem to go through this period where they, they you know, they think that the, the, rule, the normal rules of the universe don't apply to them. And this was one of the reasons Water, Waterworld failed. Anything else to add on this, mate? I don't think so, man. Very good. That's all for this month's Double Real Features. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Casualties of War is available to rent or buy from the usual digital and physical sources. Information on John Carpenter and Tombstone is limited to an interview he gave in the 1990s, but there is a very good book by John Farkas on the making of the actual film. Tune in next week for The Big Conversation, where we discuss film trilogies and which one is our favourite. We look forward to speaking to you then. Take care in the meantime.